The question is this, how is Governor State positioning themselves? What is our competitive advantage to attract Latinx students, which we know, especially in the areas that we serve, is one of the largest student populations, largest opportunity that we have. Welcome to our podcast, Teaching and Leading with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. I am Dr. Amy Viaclia, Director of Educator Preparation. And I am Dr. Joy Patterson, Chief Diversity Officer. Our podcast addresses issues through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, along with solutions for us to grow as educators. So join us on our journey to become better teachers and leaders. So let's get into it. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. Oh, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. As you know, the Latin community is the fastest growing community. So there is lots for us to discuss today. And Governor State University is an is an emerging Hispanic-serving community. We've grown so much with our Latinx community. Our services are growing. Uh And I'm going to talk to someone today who can talk more about how we are serving this population. Mr. Emmanuel Lopez is the inaugural director of the Latinx Resource Center at Governor State University. He's a co-advisor for the Association of Latin American Students on campus. He also serves as the vice chair for the Hispanic Alliance for Career Enhancement, Chicago Board, and on the Executive Conference Committee for the United States Hispanic Leadership Institute. Mr. Lopez earned his master's degree in education leadership from Northeastern Illinois University an Hispanic-serving institution, and comes to us today to talk about what we're doing and specifically what you are doing at Governor State University. Welcome to our podcast, Mr. Emmanuel Lopez. Hi. Hi, Manny. How are you? I'm doing great. And and before we start here, I just want to ground us in gratitude. I think, um, you know, oftentimes in this journey, you reach a peak and then there's always more peaks, right? You always want to do more. And I, I have to say, this has been, uh, once I reached, became a director position, I'm like, man, I eventually want to be a part of this podcast. And luckily, you all blessed me with an opportunity um, right around Christmas time. So I just know I don't take this yeah. for granted. I appreciate the opportunity. Manny, I think you're amazing. Your energy is amazing. And you are rising and up and coming. And so I thought it was very important not just because of your energy and all that you bring, but the knowledge that you bring to the table and helping our students and mainly, and and not just our Latinx community. I mean, you've helped all of our students and that's what your focus is now. So we're going to get into that today. I want to learn, I want our audience to learn more about you and how you came to work in the capacity of helping Latinx students navigate college. Yeah, so wow, that's a, that's a great starting question. And um, a little bit more about me. I'm the oldest of, of four boys, right? So my parents migrated to the United States. I was born in Harvey, Illinois, and I'm the oldest, right? So there's, um, I think whenever you're the oldest, there's a lot of pressure. pressure. That's a lot of pressure, and that's a high bar for your brothers. 
No, it absolutely is. But, you know, I think I'm a product of, of great parenting. I think without a doubt, you know, at that time, you know, around the Harvey area, there's a lot of gang violence. I had a cousin who passed away due to gang violence. You know, not the nicest of areas, right? But I think my parents always sheltered me and, and just guided me in the right direction, right? So here we are, we fast forward high school, I had unconditional love on my mom. I, I feel this great desire to give back to her. And I think what they did really did well, and this is a hack for parents, right? I think whenever I would bring tests or, or exams, my mom would always overreact to to when I scored well, right? So I would bring an A or I'd bring a 100%. And she would just make such a big deal. I'm like, wow, this is so amazing. Like you are so like those words of affirmation and that kind of a pattern allowed me to eventually like want, like eventually towards the end and towards high school, she wouldn't do it as much, right? But towards the end, I just started doing it for myself because it just became a, a pattern, right? I just like, this just feels good. And I think that was a way for me to pay my parents there's no way I could ever pay them out for um for, for all the work and all the sacrifices they give that they've given me to position to me where I am here today. But so essentially I started at community college and that wasn't plan A, right? I tell students all the time, they look at me and I was a director. Oh, you have an associate's, a bachelor's, a master's, an honorary degree. Oh, you, you can't relate to us, you know. But I tell students all the time, I had no idea what I was doing after high school. I was lost. I, I initially wanted to go to uh, Grand Valley State University. I didn't get into housing. And then I was completely lost. I was like, do I wait a semester? Do I, I'm on, on a wait list? And my community college advisor at the time, Jenica Rodriguez, she was like, why don't you start here? And I'm like, okay, I'll start here. The best financial decision I could have made. And I decided to take uh, advantage of everything they had to offer, right? I'm like, hey, if I'm here, I'm going to take advantage of everything. So I was involved with all the student clubs, went to graduated there, went to Indiana University Northwest, continued to be super involved at the student level, had great mentors. Then I went to Northeastern University where I got my master's and then I got my graduate assistantship at Northwestern University. So I'm a product of all of these experiences, all of these colleges and universities, right? Being able to go somewhere and make an impact, go somewhere, make an impact. And I'm here now at, at GSU doing the work that I truly love. And I am extremely grateful for that opportunity. And the timing was impeccable. My goodness, right? So for me to come as a recruiter, then get promoted to assistant director. And then my dream job, this appears at this time right? Like, I, I knew there was going to be an opportunity like this in the future. I just knew it. In my heart, I'm like, I believe with, with the pattern that Illinois is on, there's thir there are 31 HSIs, 26 emerging HSIs. That pattern is only going to continue to increase. I knew there was going to be an opportunity for me at some point. But I think, um, you know, God has graced me with this opportunity. And I'm very, very happy to be at Governor State University. And I'm very, very happy to continue to do this work and, and excited for the future. I think we're positioning ourselves really well. That was a long answer, Joy. I'm so sorry. I love your answer. And it really speaks to how different interactions, different conversations can lead us in a certain direction without us knowing it at the particular time. Are there particular experiences or interactions that led you to higher education? What exactly landed you into wanting to be in higher ed? Yeah. And I, at that time, even all the way. And so I was at undergrad at IUN at Indiana University of West. I didn't really think I was going to go into higher ed. Right. I just think that I look back and I'm like, I had a great time at Prairie State College because of a few people who mentored me. And they just they aside from the classroom, right, because college and universities, there's a lot of things they have in common. You go to class, you go out. Right. But it's truly when it comes to the student experience, my mentors allowed me to really take advantage of the student experience opportunities, the student leadership opportunities. And I think that kind of slowly started compounding. I'm like, oh, I'm student body president here. I enjoy this work. I like the impact that I'm doing. Oh, I'm the president for the Latino club on campus. I have impact. I enjoy what I'm doing. And on top of these, I was uh, whenever I was in a student leadership position, I had advisors, right? I had people looking after me, guiding me. And I'm like, 
man, the what they do and what they have done to me, I'm like, this is amazing. I don't think I would have this experience where I would be on where I'm at today without without those influences, those little nudges that kind of correcting my journey as I continue moving forward. And I just sought that wherever I went, went to Indiana University uh, Northwest, student ambassador. I was a new student orientation leader. I was a president for the Latino Club of Vivera as well. And I just loved it. And I'm like, I love my time here. I'm enjoying and I never lived on campus. So those students who say, oh, you have to live on campus to gain the true college experience, completely lie. I was one of the most involved students because I loved it. And I think it was through those involvements that I eventually, uh, I wanted to embody, I wanted to, I wanted to be that next mentor, right? Because I saw them and I'm like, I want to be just like you. I want to have the impact that you had on me for other students. And that's the way that I feel like I could, I could pay back the, my mentors is by being somewhat a resemblance of the of the work and influence that they had on me, right? And, and to this to degree, I'm just trying to be half as great as them because they were amazing. You, you know, before we get to our next question, I just want to respond to some things that you're saying. I am also a product of Chicago Community Colleges. I went to Daly Community College. And I think um, just looking at where you are, you know, I, I've had my doctorate degree for almost 30 years now. You have your master's degree and will soon have your doctorate degree. And just to think you're a product of a community college. And I don't think that sometimes people see that as uh, their path, but it is a very efficient path and it can lead to very great things. So really a shout out to community colleges. It's a smart decision, right? And I tell parents all the time, especially if, you're, if your child is not sure, you know, or if they're a little immature or they need more time or whatever it is, you know, consider community colleges. It's a very efficient way to get your start. And and the other thing I wanted to say, it is so very, very important to get yourself involved, immersed in the entire experience. Not too long ago, we had the former president of Prairie State here, and she knows Manny. So how many students know university presidents and she knows him by name and, you know, the Lopez boys, right? And that's just such an impact. So you took total advantage of the college experience. So back, back to this conversation, uh, this very important conversation about the Latinx community, which is now the second largest population in the United States. Many people don't realize that, you know, following whites. And that's why this, what we're talking about is so important today. So before we begin, because we're going to talk about this community a lot, let's kind of break down the proper nomenclature. Do we call our students Hispanic? Do we call them Latin? Do we call them Latinx? Can you break down some of the nomenclature for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, and it's an evolving term, right? Uh, these are changing times. I mean, even COVID, right? It, it shows us that everything could change and in, in, in really, really quickly, right? And I did a presentation and luckily I think, Joy, you invited me to do a, a presentation on how to become a better ally to the Latinx and undocumented student community, um, which I love doing. And uh, I want to continue to do that work more. But um, yeah, in terms of the terms, I think they've evolved. People don't realize how much they have evolved, right? So they look now and, and, and I know there are surveys out there. They say, well, the general population doesn't agree with the term Latinx. I get that. But at the same time, there, each term has evolved over time, no matter what, no matter what people thought of them. So, for example, even tracing back all the way to the term uh, Chicano. Right. So that was really the first term that really merged Mexican-American. 
So there's people, there's obviously people of Mexican descent in the United States. And like we don't have a term for us, right? They're Mexican-American. So they really took on this term Chicano. And then after that, it eventually evolved to Hispanic, right? Because of the, the census and the United States uh, really having to give a designation for people who spoke Spanish, essentially, and for the most part were of Mexican descent. And then that term eventually evolved to Latino, right? For the longest time, that was probably the, the most widely uh, accepted term. And then eventually we're like, oh, well, what do we call women, right? Are we going to call them Latino as well? Um, and then we, the Latina term really became a popular, and to this day is very, very popular, right? Latina, you're not going to go to some to a female and say, oh, you're Latino, right? You're, you're Latina, right? Um, and then in, in recent history, and perhaps the, the largest leap that we've made in terms of intersectionality um, and really taking into consideration, uh, you know, folks who are queer or non-binary, the learned Latinx came forward, right? So the term Latinx is, is uh, and one of the and one of the terms that's mostly used across higher education institutions. I understand that it might not be used at households, right? For example, and I and I will uh, and I will admit that, right? In my household, if I go to my parents and say the learned term Latinx, they probably don't know what that is or they want to know how to pronounce it, right? I understand that, but as someone who has been to multiple different uh, institutions in higher education, Latinx is becoming kind of the, the leader, right? And once again, it's because it's the most intersectional, inclusive term. Right in in Latinx, you're not only uh, you're including Brazilian students because I've learned the term Hispanic is referred to students who speak Spanish. Well, Brazilian students who are also in Latin America do not speak Spanish, right? So Latinx incorporates them, right? They feel included. Now you also include folks who are who identify with the community, right? LGBTQ uh, Q plus, um, and then also like in in both male and female, right? So the X could really stand for a lot of different things. And, and I really enjoy using that term. And once again, when you look at Harvard, when you look at Northwestern, when you look at a lot of schools in, in, in the West Coast, right, California, they're also using the term Latinx. Now, the most recent term is Latin, Latin with an E at the end. And that kind of came around is because those who are Spanish speaking, they said, well, Latinx, how do you really pronounce that in Spanish? It doesn't, it, it's not a, there's not very few words with the, with the letter ending with the letter X. So they're like, that's not really grammatically and how you pronounce it. It doesn't really align with the actual language, right? So Latin is coming to the rise. And it just goes to show you how it's evolving, right? There are some universities that are using Latin. When uh, Indiana University Northwest is using Latin. But there's very, I would say that the majority of them or a large population of them are using Latinx. But that could change, right? Once again, we have to be open to the change. Um, And most importantly, thinking about the future right now, right now, right? Because when I look at Gen Z, right, the future, 25% of that student population identifies LGBTQ+. Um, which is extremely important because if we know that 25% of the future is identifying with that, then we also have to use terms that include them, right? So I think it's um that's kind of where I I would land in terms of, right. of, of the and, and it is evolving. And I think what I get out of it is really it's also a matter of respect. You know, we're going to do a workshop on honoring names and culture. It's respecting generations too, right? For example, you talked about your parents. It's okay to ask people how they want to be identified and then identify them accordingly. And I think that's the important takeaway here. I'm kind of wondering now how the rest of our questions should be phrased. But we have been using Latinx in, of course, the center, the resource center is named Latinx, but the Latin or Latinx community is broad, as we learned, like you said, in the nomenclature, we have students of Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Spanish, Salvadoran, Dominican, Guatemalan, Colombian, Venezuelan origin. 
and beyond. Now, while they all fall under Latinx, they all have very different cultures and needs. And many of them came to the U.S. through different paths. So could you talk about your role as the director of the Latinx Center designed to meet the needs of so many different cultures? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the challenge, right? And and I go back to even, um, it really comes to what, how do we define servingness? here at, at Governor State University, right? It really comes down to that because yeah, it's very hard, right? So your answer, is there a right answer, right? There's so many different cultures. How do you appropriately represent each one of them? Do you have a workshop for each Latin American country, right? That's a lot of countries that we're talking about, right? That 25 plus. So it comes down to, well, being intentional, right? When you have a programming event, not always using, um, using you know, items or games that kind of you could see across many Latin American countries. I think we even had um, we're very intentional with this with our with our Latinx club here on campus called Alas. We're always thinking about, OK, if we're going to have an event. Is it too Mexican centric? Right. Uh, we want to make sure that it appeals to a lot of Latin American countries. Right. Because, yeah, we do have a lot of Brazilian students here. We have a lot of Guatemalan students here. We have, obviously there's a, a rising of uh, a number of Venezuelan students here. So it comes down to well, how can we create an, a welcoming, inclusive environment that that all feel welcome, right? So that if someone walks into the room, they're like, oh, why are we just listening to Mexican music, right? Why why are we only just uh, eating Mexican pastries, right? The the Mexican student population, well, the Mexican population in the United States is the largest of a lot, all, all Latin American countries. It's still important to be mindful. So I think um, in terms of, of a programming event that I think uh, that kind of highlights this question is that we did a Kahoot game and the Kahoot game was comprised of all Latin American countries. So we found specific things about all Latin American countries add them to a game so that they all were represented. And most importantly, use it as an educational piece, right? If you're going to have a programming piece, it's great to have, yes, maybe certain things, but educate other students as well about other Latin American countries. I think that's one of the best ways we could go about this as uh, for students to feel represented is, is also educating because students also want other students to know more about their culture, right? And I think when you tie in education with also fun, I think that's probably the best way to tackle it. But it is a challenge. I, I can't sit here and say I have the, all the answers to it. I think it's a very, very hard thing. I don't think there's a best practice. What I do try to do, though, is as you look here, right, I have a serape. That serape is a very cultural cloth, as you could see across many Latin American co countries. And it kind of started around Peru. Many people think, oh, that's uh, we see that a lot in Mexico. No, but it actually started around uh, the, the Peru. Um, you start to see this and then it, it went up into other Latin American countries. Right. But being mindful that when a student sees that, they know that, oh, uh, they feel re culturally represented. Right. I also try to include a lot of bilingual language in, in my programming or when I talk to students so that they also see that, you know, I do speak Spanish. I leave the door open for students so that they almost because uh, a lot of these Latin American countries, not all of them, most of them speak Spanish. Right. So that's also a way for me to connect with the student and for, for me for me to really do right by the student. But it's a very, very hard thing to do. But, I, you know, we're trying. And I think more than anything, we have to be as creative as possible. Creativity is the infinite resource and we have to lean on it a lot more. You know, one of the things you talked about is connecting with students. My first teaching position, I was a bilingual science teacher to eighth grade students and I had all Mexican students. And so for me, you know, my job is not teaching. My job is student learning. And in order for that to happen, I really had to accommodate the culture. And uh, that meant connecting with the parents. 
you know, and having learning to do my newsletters in Spanish and things like that became very, very important if I wanted the parents to be involved, which was necessary for the students' achievement, especially at eighth grade, you know, when some of the students had already been out of school. And then the I remember one year I got uh, Guatemalan students and, you know, just the difference in cultures. I think it's important as educators for us to really embrace the culture, not force students to assimilate, right? Because we all grow. We broaden, you know, when we accept someone else's culture. To add to the different cultures that uh, you and Dr. Amy were speaking about, you also are dealing with DACA students, those Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And we know some of the laws have changed recently regarding DACA students. Uh, there's a lot of tension right now that intended to give some relief to immigrants who came here uh, when they were children, you know, to give them opportunities for jobs, going to school. And we know that ourselves in dealing with DACA students, there's still a lot of gaps. There's gaps in financial aid. There's there's gaps and even them getting involved, right? Having that status kind of limits them. They feel like it limits them. So talk about some of the challenges of DACA students and some of the things they might face. And what are some of the things they need to consider if they're going to pursue a college degree? Man, that's um that's a very, very um challenging question because there's so many implications, right? There's federal, there's state level, and then there's institutional level. Like there's so many barriers for these DACA and undocumented students that makes it really, really hard as me, even me as the undocumented student liaison, right? I have to first kind of look at a lot of these things and, and see how they play out. And it changes a lot by state, right? So luckily we're in Illinois, we're in an undocumented friendly state for students in which you're right, uh, Joy, we do have the undocumented um, alternative FAFSA application that is open for DACA undocumented students, which allows them to get state, not federal, state aid, right? But this, that's that's a great, that before before many students don't have any um, opportunity to get any state level aid. So I think here in Illinois, we, we have a lot of good things. The, the, the issues though, is that many DACA undocumented students don't know that that's the, the, uh, that resource exists. And a lot of this starts at the high school level. And that's one of the areas that I do wanna tackle very heavily is when I do go speak to these high schools, I, I wanna make sure that they are very well informed about these resources that they have at their disposal and they're uh, and they're up to date, right? And, and if they're like, hey, well, this is great, but th this is outside of my my work. You know, I, I don't, this is this goes beyond me. Well, then they could lean on me then to be like, hey, well, if, if you're open and willing, come speak to our students. I will get you the students. I will happily go and talk to the students, right? So one of the many, in terms of challenges, I think more than anything is the legal uncertainty, right? And, you know, just imagine how hard it is that, yes, you have DACA, you could temporarily work, but that could change, right? Sorry. So here you are, you're like, okay, I can do this. I'm going to invest maybe four to uh, four years of college, four to five years of college. I don't know what the landscape is going to look like for the next president, right? I don't know how that's going to impact. So here you are, all these questions in your mind that you're dealing with, and you're like, is it going to be worth it? Right. Am I going to go to college and then DACA go, disappears? Right. And just imagine uh, wrestling with that idea as a college student. And that's a lot. So I think it weighs a lot on the students' minds um, because they don't know. Right. And, and unfortunately, they lean on me. And unfortunately, I don't know. Right. So what I do, what I do tell them, what I do try to affirm them is that, you know, luckily they could apply for an I-10. They could apply for an uh, EIN. 
Um, they could, uh, you know, essentially become contractor employees that doesn't necessarily rely on citizenship. There's ways to going around that, right? But it is challenging. So at the bare minimum, I try to listen to the students. I try to tell them the research that we have here at GSU. I tell them how I could support and I could be, if you don't know something, I will help you do the research. I, we could go through this journey together. At the bare minimum, that's something that I could do for you as a student here at Governor State University. I could be that person alongside you. And yes, while I might not have all the answers, I have a network of people in higher education who I could lean on and get answers for you. Sometimes those answers are not the answers that the students are seeking, but at the bare minimum, I'm getting clarity in their mind. I'm giving them an opportunity to have some clarity and, and that does allow them to feel a little bit better. But it is very challenging. But I would say at the very top is the legal uncertainty. As we mentioned earlier, Governor State University is an emerging HSI, an Hispanic-serving institution. And we anticipate that Gulf State will reach the 25% of Latinx population within the next couple of years and join the ranks of the other 31 HSIs in Illinois to become a federally designated Hispanic-serving institution. Could you talk about what this status will mean to Gulf State in the community and how the students might benefit? Yeah, no, it's an exciting time here at Governor State University. And part of my role too is to make sure that I edu educate internal stakeholders as well as external uh, stakeholders in regards to what does it mean to be an emerging HSI? That is not a federal designation. So that's a designation that institutions made up to kind of um, give them the, um, the incentive to pursue the HSI designation, the Hispanic Serving Institution designation, because that is a federal designation, but emerging HSI is not. But I think there's a great opportunity there because even for me, I'm going to be working with uh, with marketing and I want them to create an EHSI logo, right? So that when we could have, uh, whenever I have flyers or presentations, I could put the, the, the GSU logo and then on the side, you know, EHSI, right? Emerging HSI. It all starts with branding and visibility, right? But in terms of what that means for the university, it's a responsibility. Being an emerging HSI, as much as it is a designation, it's a responsibility that institutions have and it's an opportunity that institutions have to be able to, to um, fund, uh, foundationally structure themselves to aid and, and support and, and, and service a, a large population that's growing in the United States, right? Not just in Illinois, although Illinois is the fifth largest Hispanic enrolling state in the United States. There's 31 HSIs already in the state of Illinois alone, and there's 26 emerging HSIs, which means that those emerging are eventually going to become HSIs. And we're probably going to be top four. We're going to be able to surpass Florida in terms of the, the schools that we have here. So Illinois as a state, we really have to be thinking about increasing that visibility, right? Uh, educating ourselves a little bit more. What does it mean? Um, and owning that designation, owning what it means to be truly owning, not just using it as a leverage point, not just using it as talking points, but using it as a way to transform institutions a little bit better. Because I think those, as we start thinking about there's less students going to college, well, then it's going to become more competitive, right? The market is going to become even more competitive. We're not that far from Chicago, which is hyper competitive, right? There's students, they're, they're fighting for the same batch of students, right? Uh -huh. I think it comes down to is how is, the question is this, how is governor state positioning themselves? What is our competitive advantage to attract Latinx students, which we know, especially in the areas that we serve, is one of the largest student populations, largest opportunity that we have. So I think now, but I think even with the Latinx Research Center, it shows the level of leadership, intentionality of, of our president, Dr. Green, and those who are make those decisions to be like, hey, we're going to go in the offense, right? We're just coming out of a pandemic, right? But we're not going to be like, oh, well, let's wait. Let's see how this is going to impact us. No, let's go ahead and build this Latinx Research Center. Let's invest in the student experience because we know that's going to pay dividends in the long term. And, uh, and I'm very excited in terms of what it can mean once we reach that HSI status. 
is multi-million dollar grant opportunities for, for the university. I mean, we're talking about 5 million, 6 million. There's three really big HSI grants that are up for grabs. And like we said, five to $6 million, that's $600,000 per year that we could utilize to layer on top of what we already have. And we're positioning ourselves really, really well. So it's a tremendous opportunity that we have. And I'm excited to be a part of that. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really forward to, I really want Gulf State to become the dominant university in the South suburbs when it comes to when, when Latino students graduate from, from Prairie State, Kankakee, Joliet, Moraine, South Suburban, when they graduate and they think, oh, what, what university do I want to go to? I want them to think of Governor State as a, as a hub for Latinx student success. I want to create more success students for, uh, for our Latinx students. So that's, that's where I'm at with that. Absolutely. And I think you should not have a very big budget for that E, HSI, because pretty soon you're going to have to get rid of that E. So That's don't what, spend too much money on the E, okay? <laughs> right, we're trending. You're right, Joy. I think, um, you know, given that we're not a large institution, we could make significant leaps now with the level of intentionality, the level of intentional work that we're doing to get there faster. Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. Here's something really important. In years past, because I've studied this, and, and Amy, you probably studied this, probably most people who have uh, an education doctorate knows that there's been a huge achievement gap, right, between Latinx students and their white counterparts. Today, that has shifted, right? So that has shifted. Uh, Latinx students, they are staying on par with their white counterparts, and in some data shows that they're even exceeding. So that is a fantastic news. What do you attribute to the huge success and turnaround that we're seeing? You know, there's a, I think as someone be kind of self-studying myself, right? You're a perfect example. <laughs> a lot of it has to do with um, the level of representation that we're starting to see at the at the student-facing level. So I think before there wasn't a lot of Latinx representation at the recruiter level, at the advisor level, at the uh, and, and enrollment management level, right? I think that we've tremendously have made a, a significant leap in regards to that. So when when you're going to a a college fair, you start to see a lot more Latinx recruiters, right? So in terms of access, that's huge, right? Because now, oh, that person looks like me. I'm going to go ask them questions. Oh, they speak Spanish. Now they could talk to my parents, educate them as well. Now in terms of getting into the school, that's easier, right? So the, I think for the longest time is that there wasn't just enough of us getting into there. Now, now there is, right? In terms of the next level, I think that there's also, um, um oftentimes we look at first-generation students, especially Latinx students, not having like capital, right? As, as a deficit lens, right? And I think Tara, Tara Yozo, cultural wealth model, right, um, kind of highlights that Latinx students has a, ha, Latinx and color and, and students of color have a lot of capital that may not just be like, um, we not we might not have the largest um, networks going into college, right? We're first generation, we're, we're building our own capital, but we, what we do have is aspirational capital. What we do have is navigational capital. What we do have is a sense of pride to, to represent ourselves and to, and to honor our parents and honor our country. Right. We feel a lot of pressure internally because when we go when I go back to Mexico, I look at my cousins and they're like, wow, they look up to me. They're like, yo, you went you, you made it to the United States. Like, we're really proud of you. We know that you're doing a lot of great work over there. We know that you're presenting our heritage really, really well. And, and we get a lot of that pressure. So that pressure ends up becoming a fuel for a lot of our Atlantic students to to be ambitious. Right. To be to once again, highlight that aspirational capital and to be the first in their family to do it. And not only that, but I think there's also once they become the first, they want to make sure that they're not their last. So now we have a lot of students who graduate college, just like myself. I was able to help my brother now get his master's degree from U of I in accounting. And I was able, able to help him graduate debt free from U of I as he lived there for almost four years because I was able to do it. So we're starting to see a lot of these older brothers, my generation almost, 
getting them to the end goal and now facilitating the process for students and be like, hey, once you get there, it's going to be difficult, but here's how you can navigate it. Connect to these people, make sure that you use these offices, um, because quite frankly, I think the area that we're, we're still, that's still an opportunity, although we are on par with our white students, is that we're still not taking advantage of all the offices that we have here. There's still a lot of way that we could even improve there. I, I talked to a lot of my Latinx students and they haven't gone to the career services, right? They haven't gone to, uh, to edit the resumes. So I have to overcome them. How do I close that gap? But I think we're in a good spot, but I think going to your, to your question, Joe, I think there's a lot of different things, but, and especially centers like this, right? Now, centers like this, that's also going to help. They're going to be like, hey, the university is invested in students like me. I want to, like, that's that could be the push that they need. Now they come talk to me. Now they feel more affirmed. They feel more motivated. They feel more empowered. All that stuff trickles down to higher retention. All that stuff uh, trickles down to, once again, more Latinx student success here at Governor State University. You're speaking about something that is so valuable and important for our local school districts to recognize. When students see and are taught by someone who looks like them, there is that element of relationship and that mentorship. And I can do that mentality. So what you are saying is so very important not just at the university level, but at all levels of education. And I'm curious too, to propel success forward, we still need to identify and address challenges that are still existing. So what are you saying as some challenges that Latinx students face when they come to college? Yeah. So I would say that, um, I think it starts at the high school level. I think a lot of our high schools are not educating our, our our Latino students in regards to the pathways to starting at a community college. I think many of them are being pushed to the university level, and that's fine. But I think that um, there's educational pieces at the high school level that we could do so that they better understand and feel better about when they do make that step into the community college and not feel like, oh, I'm a failure. Oh, I'm starting here. Right. I think if we flip the switch and be like, hey, that's just a stepping stone because that I didn't know that. Right. When I went to community college, I was like, oh, man, like uh, and no one told me I could graduate debt free here. No one told me that I could transfer 60 credits here. No one told me that this was just um my GPA was going to transfer to university, right? No one like no one told me none of these things. No one told me that I was going to actually get a, an associate's degree along the way to having a bachelor's degree, right? If they would have taught me that much earlier, I'm like, oh man, that's a steal, right? So, in terms of challenges, though, I think that we um you know faculty, right? And that's not just at, at Gulf State. I think across Illinois, across the United States, if if, if our Latino students are already kind of doing well. Imagine what that could look like if we actually had greater representation at the faculty level. And I'm not saying we need to oh, only start recruiting Latinx faculty. I just think that it should represent that population a little bit better. I think across all state, uh, all state schools, all community colleges, but that's just an area and opportunity, right? And in, in terms of what we could, uh, what are some of the challenges? I think that we're still lacking a lot of representation at the faculty level, because sometimes when you're taking an English 101 class or something and or a math 101 class, I think if there were that, that professor was Latinx, I think it could... It could, I don't know, a lot of these classes I look at that could be challenges for our students. I think that could be overcome if we were to have more representation at the faculty level. Yeah, I want to comment on that. As you know, that's something that we identified here as a need. So we are making some stride and we're changing some policies. And that goes all the way to where do you look for faculty, right? What is the Latin community reading? What are they looking at? Where do they search for jobs and make sure that we're in those places and spaces to attract Latin faculty? And how do we provide mentorship? So the Latin faculty that we have, right, that we keep them. 
Yep, that we retain that intellectual capital here. So, so all those things are in play. And so we anticipate seeing that growth of Latin faculty because I think it's really, really, really important to have that representation. I also want to go back to something that you, when we were talking about the huge success in the achievement gap that we're seeing. One thing I think we need to mention is first gen. You toyed around that a lot without us really talking about first generation students because many of the students that you are seeing in the Latinx community are first generation students too. So there's a double challenge there, right? So part of that, how do you navigate college? And when you're talking about, because you're the oldest, I didn't know this, I didn't know that, I didn't know this, I didn't know that, is not just being a Latinx student, but it's being a first generation student. So it's compounded. And thankfully your brothers, they have you. <laughs> you know, although they're considered first gen as well, at least they have a very, very successful older brother that can say, this is kind of what I've learned. These are some of the hurdles I've had to overcome. This is how you can get around that. And I think more and more of that messaging like this, this is important for our Latin community to hear this. Where are the resources? You don't have to know all the answers. All you have to do is know at least one person, that mentor that helped you, that Manny at Governor State University that helped me, that's going to help me navigate college. So, so what are your hopes? I know that you're new in this position. It's a new Latinx center and it's the inaugural position. So all you have is hopes and dreams at this point you know, right? Of what you imagine it to be. And what is your hopes of what you can offer students? And how do you see your role in the Latinx Center evolving? Yeah. Luckily, I've never lacked ideas, Joy. Luckily, it's not been an area. <laughs> and luckily, I've been um, wherever I've gone, right? I was a student, but I was the vice president for the Latina Club at Prairie State College the president for the Latinx club at IUN and out of state school. I was very involved with Northeastern, right? And then at Northwestern University, I helped, I was under their multicultural student affairs department working with Latinx students at, at the private, right? At the very prestigious level. So I have, I've been able to kind of be like, okay, I like that. I like what I did over here. Oh, this university did this really well. I go to a lot of conferences. So I learn from a lot of folks, but in terms of hopes, you know, I want, I think the challenge right now, right? And 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 the, the, the first thing that I'm gonna have to address, right, is, is getting people to know that we have that here at Governor State University, right? That's the number one thing, because I cannot help as many students as I envision if people do not know I exist, right? Period, right? So I think my number one goal, and, and this is really going to take off, is once I actually hire my assistant director, is that that, that person is essentially going to be running the center itself, right? I'm going to be here, absolutely, but I want to be out there, right? I want to be at the high schools. I want to be educating uh, counselors, right, who are going to be some of my my advocates, who are going to be some of the people advocating, oh, you need you need to talk to Manny. That's who you need to talk to. They're going to help you, right? Because I know that at the high school counselor level, they meet with a lot of students. I know it's very hard, right? They It's it's almost impossible for us to imagine them to meet with so many students and expect them to educate them all uh, very well, right, in terms of college access and community colleges. I understand that, right? So that's where I think there's an opportunity for me to kind of insert myself there. And once again, to your point, Joy, they just need to be telling when they when, when they meet with parents or a student, they don't need to know everything. But what they can know is like, I know someone who could help you, right? And I want to be that person. I want to be that contact so that when they do 
um, end up meeting these students, they I build that relationship and they know wherever student they send to me that I'm going to take care of them, that I'm going to educate them, that I'm going to educate their parents too, that they're going to feel a lot more confident about these next steps. And I think if I could do that, that's going to be a huge thing because then we're going to widen these pathways that, that we have with high schools. That's my goal. Right now we have pathways that Latino students are coming to Governor State from Moraine, a little bit from Prairie State, some from Cree, some from Loom High School. I want to widen those pathways though. So it's very, very clear what we have here to offer at, at Governor State University, but that starts with vis visibility, right? So that's one of my hopes. I think um, once we, because I focus on recruitment, focus on enrollment, right? And once we get to the HSI level and we get some of those fundings, I think, you know, investing in, in hiring more Latinx faculty, investing in and developing our first generation center more, right? Because the, the HSI funding, and this is the biggest misconception is that, oh, we only want to get HSI funding because we only want to get that money for to help our Hispanic students. That money, nowhere in the writing does it say you only have to su support Hispanic students. It's a money that you utilize to help all students, but we do need to track how Hispanic students are, are being helped in particular. But is no, nowhere are we going to say, oh, this is this money is only going to be used for Hispanic students. No, that's the money that we're going to utilize in the best way that we think the institution needs to utilize that money. And then we're going to track how Hispanic students are being helped. But that's a lot of money. So that's a really, really exciting. I think we're going to get there at a much faster pace, like you mentioned, Joy. But there's a lot of great opportunities. I want to become that hub, right? That Latinx student success hub. I want people to know when they when they think of Governor State University, um, besides just thinking of me, right? Thinking, oh, there's a space for, Lat for Latino, Latina, Latinx students there that could support you, that could mentor you, that could empower you, that could help you even after you graduate college, that create, that will connect you with resources where, where there are Latino club. Our Latinx uh, sorority and fraternities, right? A place where you could thrive, right? Because I want us to go from Hispanic enrolling, which we're, that's where we're currently at. We're Hispanic enrolling. We're getting into the servingness part now, but eventually that third part is to Hispanic thriving, right? That's where I want to get to. That's kind of like the three phase model here. And it's going to take time. Absolutely. But I would argue that uh, we're positioning ourselves really well. I'm excited. Your excitement is contagious and we are excited for you. We are excited for us to have you. And I have just really enjoyed this conversation. You've fired me up for what you have in store for us. And thank you because we will need to talk to you again. Yes. Talk about phase two and three. Yeah. And, um, and I also, aside from educating the community, I, I also want to educate the internal uh, stakeholders as well, right? Educate more yeah. about undocumented resources about the Latinx students that we do have, the resource that we do have. I want my faculty and my staff across campus that I, perhaps I don't meet that probably we don't get to engage often for them to know that the resources that they have here, right? So that I maximize also other getting allies that are going to send students my way because there's no way that I'm going to be able to personally be across paths with every single Latinx student here on campus. That's impossible. But if I build and increase my allyship across campus and have them direct students my way, then once again, the goal of helping more Latinx students is being achieved. Right. So an extremely exciting time. And, and I want to be that I, that really when we talk about where you find this energy, where you find this fire, why you why do you sound so excited? I think I am extremely grounded and making my parents proud. Right. That's that's my engine. Right. That's the twin turbo engine that I have inside. At the end of the day, I want to make my parents proud. And I know by doing this work, I'm going to highlight the great work that my parents did on me. Right. And to me, that's just a dream come true. So that's why I always have this energy, because I, I am very grateful. I, I I'm here in the United States of America, right? Like my like I saw my parents, who my mom, who taught herself English and sign language, right? She did not graduate from high school here. She graduated, she taught herself English and sign language to do her job better. No one could tell me what's impossible here in the United States uh, of America, right? There's nothing impossible. So I think um I'm very much grounded in, in the sacrifices that they've given me and 
And I just want to make them proud. And I think I could do that. And I could hide all the love that my mom gave to me, my parents gave to me, and channel that onto every single student that I meet, right? I'm just a reflection of my parents. Okay, promise me one thing, Manny, that you will share this recording with your parents. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to have my mom, when we do have our annual inaugural um, ribbon cutting, I want her to be alongside whoever the, the highest level, my President Green or Vice President McGinnis or Joy, if you're there, I want her to be a part of that that ribbon cutting as well. I think that's going to mean a lot to me to be, for her to be implanted in history. Without her, I'm not here, right? Without her, I'm not doing this work. Without her, um, I don't get a master's degree. I don't have an honor degree, right? I think the only degree that I still have left is that doctoral degree. At that point, I'll, I'll have the gauntlet of education, right? I have an associate's, yeah. bachelor's, bachelor's, honorary, and now a doctoral degree. But with, without them, I'm not here. So I love that. I absolutely wish I would them. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Manny. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Leading with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. Visit our website at govst.edu slash teachingandleadingpodcast to see the show notes from this episode. We appreciate Governor State University's work behind the scenes to make publishing possible. Stay tuned for more episodes with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.